Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy Windy City City Historians. Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy with simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Rapunzel creates excitement and encourages financial education. Check out their free mobile app and the interviews of Brian and Miles in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Windy City Historians podcast, episode 20, The Third Star, part two. You got it, Chris. So here we are on Zoom again, getting ready to release another episode on the Columbian Exposition. I'm very excited about this episode. We can talk with Paul DeRica of the Newberry and Jeff Nichols of the Chicago Reader. And Patrick, like the Columbian Exposition, roofs have been collapsing all over the city because of the amazing snowfall in February 2021 when they were building the buildings at the Columbian Exposition, they were very worried about roofs collapsing because of the snow. You're right. It's still very relevant. Things haven't changed that much here in Chicago a hundred some years later. Yeah. What, what's old is new again, especially when it comes to winter. Well, and especially as it comes to the Columbian Exposition, there's so many things there that are still relevant today, which we'll get into in a little more detail in part three when we talk about some of the implications. And we're going to hear now, we've talked to Jeff Nichols about what he would like to see at the fair and the things that captured him about that history. And now we're going to do the same with Paul DeRica. And he's got a different list and some different things that that come up that are quite interesting about the Columbian Exposition of 1893. And again, the Columbian Exposition, you, you couldn't see everything in a day. And so you couldn't talk about the World's Fair in one podcast. That's why we're actually doing three podcasts on it. We had so much good stuff from both Jeff Nichols and Paul DeRica that it just didn't fit into one or two episodes and seemed like three was the right amount. And then there's a few things we're going to add in that third episode that we didn't even touch upon with those two that you've done in your research on getting ready for this. Right, Chris? Yes, I have a tower of books that is about to collapse because I've been just going on a tear on the World's Fair. And you pick any subject and you can easily go down the rabbit hole on it because the fair touched so many aspects of modern life. Right, and still many things that are relevant today that we'll get into. Right. Well, cool. Well, why don't we just jump right in with Paul and we'll have a few snippets of Jeff also on some overlapping topics to get his point, and I'm, I'm excited for this episode. Excellent. Let's do it. Hi, Paul. Hi. How are you? It's a pleasure to meet you virtually. I'm a huge fan. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Oh, yeah. No, it'll be fun. Yeah. Looking back at some of the video and the photographs of some of your reenactments, like the 1877 aqueduct. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In light of COVID, I was stunned that there was no social distancing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we wouldn't, yeah, we wouldn't be able to do. <laughs> you had so many people at that event, and it was great. And you had a marching band on a carriage. It was tremendous. Yeah. So, I mean, the inspiration for it, I think, was just to try to get, to draw a stronger connection between people and, and places, and particularly, like, parts of Chicago that people walk through perhaps on an everyday basis. They perhaps aren't aware of kind of what happened in those areas because there are no markers or there are a handful right. of, of bits and pieces of the built environment that still date to a particular period. And so how can you create a stronger kind of connection to place, help people kind of figure out, you know, how the city that we live in today came about. And so, you know, the idea is to do these kind of like interactive participatory reenactments. If I could get in a time machine and go back in Chicago history, Besides going to the World's Fair, I would go to your 2011 reenactment of the Haymarket. Oh, thanks. That was a lot of fun. Of all the different like projects that we worked on, and Bill Savage was a big part of a lot of them. That was the 
the largest. So we, we did that one to scale and that was crazy. Just trying to get that number of people to volunteer, play Chicago police officers and getting people to show up and be like the historic audience. And the different speakers. We had to work very closely with the city on that project and with Market Pub and Brewing was another partner of ours. And it's a lot of work. I must've been asleep when that was going on because I would have been there. A friend of mine, Kim Fitzpatrick, who we're going to talk to, her great-grandfather was John Fitzpatrick, one of the police officers at oh. the Haymarket. And he got promoted because of his actions at the Haymarket. Mm. And he became a detective on the H.H. Holmes case. Oh. So you never know with this stuff. It's true. Yeah, and I was watching reenactments that you've done and mm-hmm. realized years ago I'd seen Studs Terkel's place. Oh, yeah. You did at the hideout. Right. Yeah, that was a fun project. Yeah. So, Chris, why don't we do a formal intro and have Paul introduce himself? Oh, yeah. Well, thanks for joining the Windy City Historians podcast, Paul. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. My name is Paul Derica. I'm the director of exhibitions at the Newberry Library. Before I was at the Newberry, before I was at Illinois Humanities, I was at the Arts Club. And before that, I was at the University of Chicago, which is where, as a graduate student, I became really interested in Chicago history and started doing some of this work. So it's been a circuitous path, but I started by doing like walking tours. And one of them was a world's fair walking tour, which was like the sort of second thing I, I tried developing after doing a Leopold Loeb walking tour. This is when I was a graduate student at the University of Chicago. So I was living down there close to, to where the fairgrounds were. So it was uh, easy for me to get over there. Well, especially like the Midway Plaisance. I mean, that was obviously easy right. to walk. Right. And there's not much of anything left from the fair. I mean, there's except the... There's like a handful of... Museum of Science and Industry, yeah. People I mean, always think about the Museum of Science and Industry. Um, but even that, it's a little tricky because what people are looking at is the late 1930s restoration. So like all right. the other buildings at the World's Fair, you know, it was covered in that kind of plaster staff material and it had de- decayed over the years. And so when they decided to turn it into the Museum of Science and Industry, they had to completely redo the facade with, with limestone um, based on Atwood's original, you know, drawings and, and designs, the architect. But people aren't seeing what people actually at the World's Fair in 1893 saw. They just are seeing yeah. a very good reproduction. I mean, the bricks somewhere buried underneath all of that are presumably original from the fair, but but that building has, you know, been transformed so much over the years. Although Tim Samuelson, you know him, he likes to point out that yeah. one bathroom towards the stone restroom near the, the South Lagoon, but that dates from the time of the World's Columbian Exposition, and it was most likely a comfort station at the World's Fair. So people don't think about stuff like that. That stuff is important. Yeah, yeah. Humans haven't changed. Look with the Roman aqueducts. I mean, you know. Yeah, the plumbing isn't important. And that was a huge, you know, innovation at at the World's Fairs. You know, it was a fully electrified event, but, you know, they had like running water and and indoor plumbing and even like tiered restrooms, right? So ones that any member of the public could go in, but if you wanted to pay a little bit more, you could get kind of a luxury treatment with like an attendant and and towels and hot water and, and things like that. So, hey, they could bring that back. I think it'd be very popular. That's true. Today at public events, you know, we just have plastic boxes. <laughs> that's that's progress. For, I guess, about a seven-year period, 2008 to 2015, uh, along with a bunch of colleagues, I led a series of public history events. So these were talks, walking tours, and interactive reenactments dealing with Chicago's past. And uh, with Bill Savage, I edited a book called Chicago by Day and Night, The Pleasure Seeker's Guide to the Paris of America which was published in 1893. Chris, I see you've got a copy. Yes, I got it. I, I bought it when it came out. brought one too, just in case I, I need to, to reference it at some point. But Bill and I were excited to work on, on this project because it's a guidebook, not just to the World's Fair from 1893, but to the city of Chicago as well. And it's really kind of interesting to think about what was going on in the city at the time and, and how it kind of compared to the sort of lofty aspirations of the World's Fair and, and, and the White City. I've been fortunate to meet, you know, all kinds of of different people over the years through kind of doing these Chicago history events. And it's really interesting to just see all the different sorts of people who are interested in the city's past of, you know, all different ages and backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And one thing that's always interesting for me is when people come to things, if you're doing a a reenactment or a walking tour, 
who have some sort of personal connection right. to that event, either through a family member or they have something in their home that somehow they collected or inherited. And they kind of add to the experience. So that's always been like really interesting yeah. for me. So, you know, I've done things around the Leopold Loeb story, and there have been like members of, of those families who've been on some of the walking tours. I've done a lot of things around the, the Haymarket story. And then Chris, you were just talking about a connection to that story. But I've had other people who were related either to officers who were there that night, or even in some cases to, to some of the, the speakers who, who participated, like uh, descendants wow. of August Speeds. So it's really wow. interesting. To, I mean, the way in which these kind of stories, you know, survive into the present through these different families and, and their memories. And, you know, and that's the same, too, with the World's Columbian Exposition. There are so many people who still have, you know, souvenirs that they've inherited or stories that their grandparents told them that had been told to them by their parents about attending the fair. And so it's always really interesting to get those kind of very kind of personal insights into how an event transpired. Chris can speak to this, too. He created the Midway Historians, mm-hmm. you know, because he was doing a lot of aviation history and did a book on Midway. And then that group takes on a life of its own. And these additional stories come out, same with the Bridges, probably same with the Columbian Exposition, after you publish. Mm -hmm. And then there's these other great stories that would have added fantastic spice to what you'd already done. But until you do it, you won't meet like a woman who's, uh, she and her sister were there at a Father's Day for the screening of the documentary, Chicago Draw Bridges. And her father worked at the Clark Street Bridge for years and years. Mm-hmm. they would sometimes do their homework or get to see things from the perspective of that bridge house mm-hmm. and had his little blog book and just some cool stuff. Well, Paul, I always thought we should do a fake book where we go on to Rick Kogan's show, pretend we have a book on whatever subject, and then when the callers call in with all the real information, you go, <laughs> in, you go interview them and you write the book because I had that same experience. Except you won't get away with that with Rick because he does read the books before he interviews you. I know. It's true. He's too honest, historian and writer. Paul, how did you find this guidebook, Chicago by Day and Night? So Bill Savage was the person who found it, my co-editor. So Bill had been doing a lot of work with the University of Chicago Press. And the University of Chicago Press was interested in uh, doing you know, reprints and, and reissuing books about the city that had fallen out of print. And, you know, Bill had done some work, probably things that he did as best known is a, an edition of Nelson Algren's Chicago City on the Make. Yeah, I'm a big fan he of wrote that. It. Yeah. I mean, that's a great, you know, that's probably, you know, one of the best things ever written about the city, in my opinion. And Bill did an introduction for it. <clears throat> and Bill then also annotated it, right? Because my guess is even for like, readers who first encountered it in Holiday Magazine all those years ago and in the early 1950s. That text by Algren, it's got so many references. (laughs) You're really steeped in the city's history, you know, you might not get all of them. So, you know, Bill heavily annotated that book. And then this opportunity came along and his, you know, area of expertise really is is the 20th century and and the mid 20th century. And he knew we had done a couple events together he knew that my background was really in the kind of period of history from like the end of the Civil War up through the early 1920s, with real emphasis on, on the 1890s and early 1900s. And so he asked me to become involved in this. And I'd already been giving a, a kind of World's Fair walking tour. So there were a lot of stories that I encountered doing research preparing for that. And I was just sort of fascinated by this document, because similar to the Algren text, it's, you know, referencing all of these places, all of these people. And so that then gives you the sort of opportunity as someone interested in history to start diving into the archives and starting to kind of figure it out. Because mm-hmm. that's just like one moment in time. But like what happens to these places after the, the World's Fair closes? Some of them, I mean, we still, you know, recognize today. So the auditorium building has a whole chapter devoted to it. The building designed by Dankmar Adler and, and Louis Sullivan, which is today Roosevelt University. Is a true, you know, treasure of, of Chicago architecture. But there are so many other things that don't exist anymore or that changed in, in strange ways. So there's a chapter on Libby Prison, which was a structure that had been in Richmond, Virginia, and during the Civil War had been used as a prison for captured Union soldiers. And then a Chicago candy maker, Charles Gunther, purchases it and has it transported brick by brick back to Chicago. 
and erected in time so that it'll be open at the time of the, the World's Fair. It's kind of like the first almost Civil War History Museum because he got like Union soldiers who had been in prison there, but also some of the former guards who'd you know, been part of the Confederacy to kind of be the docents and, and the guides. Mm. And that was a really interesting structure, but nobody remembers it today because it didn't do well financially and it closed down. But then they built the Chicago Coliseum around it. So they basically, the front of what became the Chicago Coliseum, where the Blackhawks played for many years, where corrupt aldermen, bathhouse John Coughlin and Hinky Dink kind of had their first ward ball. Part of Libby Prison, you know, was that structure, the Coliseum. And so it's really fascinating to kind of learn those things about the city's history. Paul, you mentioned the Auditorium Theater. I cannot resist reading the footnote that you and Bill put in there. This is the quote from the guidebook. Quote, it is worth the price of a day's board or at least a dinner sometimes to take a stroll in the corridors and catch the fragments of delicious lays that are being caroled forth by the songbirds who are practicing their chosen art. These would be the opera stars that sang in it. In the sanctuary of the various chambers. And your footnote says... Delicious Lays is a sexual double entendre would have been as obvious then as it is now. So a bit body. Right. So this guidebook, I mean, the text is, you know, it's a little risque. It presents itself as, you know, the ideal reader being a kind of sophisticated man of the world who's visiting the city and take in, you know, both the, the attractions of the mind, but the uh, attractions of the body as well, right? <laughs> you, you might be admiring the fine architecture and, and taking in, you know, some of the theater and the concerts and, and so forth. There's even oddly a chapter on churches and religious services, but, you know, there's yeah. also lots of chapters on, on gambling haunts, on bars, on carousels, which at that period <laughs> were considered these places that were a little risque and a little scandalous, right? The carousels where you went potentially meet up with somebody, uh, hook up with somebody. A lot of, there was a lot of drinking going yeah. on. You're right, which could have ended well. But. I thought that was fascinating. This is where you're usually connected yeah. with beer gardens, the carousels. Right. And it was a place where the, the sexes could come together in kind of a safe manner. Right. And, and have fun. Of, yeah, of carousel. You think of like, I think of kids, kids riding a carousel now. Right. It's children. Yeah, right. 1890s, no. It was like an attraction for, for adults. It was the precursor. It's how you make kids. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so the highlights and the lowlights was really the guide, right? Right. And kind of everything in between. And who was the author of this or was there a collection? We don't really know. There is some mystery around it. So if you look at a copy that's in the, the Library of Congress uh-huh. in, in D.C., there's somebody wrote in pencil on the front page the name Harold Richard Vine. Now, Harold Richard Vine was a journalist in the Chicago area. He'd emigrated from England not too many years before the World's Fair and died fairly young in the early 1900s and wrote for a, a couple different papers like the Chicago Daily News, but also for the Chicago Inner Ocean. And he was kind of known as being a sort of like man about town. I kind of figured that you could imagine like Mm-hmm. writing this book because on the one hand for the inner ocean he would write like society column but he was also known as being this kind of bohemian figure and once got into a, a boxing match with a fellow journalist who had wronged him and even went so far as don gloves and i mean they had a little spat and then they formally like duped it out and being a reporter and in the newspaper business he would get around town he'd see a lot of these sites firsthand right on a, on a daily basis but if you look at it and you dig in a little bit deeper into his kind of biography, you realize that, you know, the author claimed to have had kind of firsthand experience with, with certain events or in certain moments in Chicago history. So there's a chapter on the Haymarket affair and, and you know, the, the men who were arrested in connection to it, four of them were ultimately executed in 1887. And nothing that Bill and I have been able to encounter in the historical records suggests that Vine was even in the United States at the time, let alone in, in Chicago. And yet the author there claims to have like witnessed this. And there's other incidents too throughout the book where things just change in terms of like tonally, in terms of like one's like word use and, and diction, one's kind of point of view, right? Sometimes it's a very conservative viewpoint. Sometimes it's a very kind of rakish bohemian viewpoint. Right. So what Bill and I believe is, Vine may be one of many authors, most likely. And given how this book came about and what we know of its publisher, this thing was cranked out quickly, right? So it came out the same year that the fair opened. 
and it really probably had a bunch of different authors contributing to it. And there's other examples of that in, in books about like Chicago history, like right in, in the aftermath of the great Chicago fire, a lot of books came out, you know, within weeks of most of the city burning down. And these books too were like the result of multiple authors kind of contributing pieces and it all just being sort of presented as a single voice. So we think it was a collective effort based on our research, but it's tough because for this particular book, there's no archive that you can go to to really verify it, right? So if mm -hmm. the publisher kept any records or any papers, I mean, they're long lost and they don't exist anymore. As I said, there's not all that much on Vine that we've been able to uncover. You know, there's some references in census records, a byline here and there. That really is kind of like one of the great mysteries around the book. Yeah, Paul, on page 143, uh, regarding the Haymarket, the writer says, if we take him at his word, he says, the writer of these lines saw the men die being seated just below the scaffold with the complete view of the proceeding. So it wasn't like he was in the back. He was below the scaffold. And he said that these men were not cowards. So that's sort of a tantalizing hint. Right. But then once again, I mean, is he being honest there? Or is it just like a little bit of a license? We don't know. I mean, the details that are provided align with what we know from the historical record, but that doesn't mean it could have been somebody who also got them through secondary sources. There's something, well, you know, power of being an eyewitness, right? But I trust that the writer was there. Well, the historian Dominic Pasiga, when we talked to him about uh, the jungle, we said, are these rumors true in Uptown Sinclair's book? And he says, well, he says, as a historian, I have a certain standard, but as a guy in a pub or a, a bar, there's stories that I can't document, but they're pretty good stories. So you, like you say, you got to take it with a grain of salt sometimes. Right. And there's like lots of stories like that around the World's Fair. To just give you one example, if you were to go down today to the Midway Plaisance, you know, which is on the southern end of the University of Chicago campus, and during the time of the World's Fair, that's where all the popular attractions were, like the, the Ferris wheel. And if you basically position yourself where Laredo Taft's Fountain of Time sculpture is now today near Cottage Grove Avenue and look east, you'll see that there's these kind of perfect rows of trees, right? The university has planted. So that's this nice tree line plaisance. But there's one tree that kind of like stands out, which is this big oak. And it's like really large, really craggly. It's got like these branches that kind of go out in all directions. It's the one thing that kind of breaks up the symmetry of the plaisance. And the story goes is that that tree was planted as part of like the Sitting Bull cabin uh, attraction on the Midway Plaisance. So Sitting Bull had been killed a couple of years prior to the World's Fair, you know, in the Dakotas. Mm -hmm. And they actually like disassembled his, the cabin that he'd been living in, brought it to the Midway Plaisance, rebuilt it, had some Sioux people there. Reportedly, they planted this tree <laughs> as part of the attraction. Now there's no, if you look at maps, Sure, it looks like it could be there, but do we have any evidence that this weird tree was actually part of the world's fair and is a strange relic from it? There's no real way of proving that, but it's a good story. People connected to the university continue to tell it and others have told it, but... Do we know where the Ferris wheel was on the Plaisance? We do have a good sense of that, and that's largely because... So if you visit that area today, you'll see that there's an ice rink that's maintained by the Chicago Park District. And when they were building that ice rink, they had to dig fairly far down and they found what they believed to be where the, the foundations for the Ferris wheel. Oh. And keep in mind, this Ferris wheel was unlike most that any of us have experienced. If you're going to Navy Pier today, it's a pretty big Ferris wheel there. But this first Ferris wheel, it stood like 264 feet tall. Yeah. Uh, there's something called the Logan Center for the Arts now in the Midway. That's only like 127 feet at the top. So you stack a couple of those on top of each other, and you're, maybe you're at the top of the, the Ferris wheel. And each car, it was like a train car. It could fit up to 60 people, and there were like 36 of those. And so it was this massive structure. So clearly needed like very deep foundations, and that's what they found when they excavated to, to build the ice rink. Well, that's like a Saturn V rocket, 260 feet. I mean, yeah you divide that, that's a 26-story building. Right. I mean, there's another apocryphal, well, this is very much in the spirit of Chicago by day and night. So when I was doing research at the University of Chicago for this tour, the university had opened a year before, in October of 1892. So a lot of the students were there as the fair was being kind of built and then later attended it. Mm -hmm. And reportedly, the operators of the Ferris wheel 
noticed that like young men, students would keep getting on the Ferris wheel over and over again. And it costs 50 cents per ride, which is the same as the cost of admission to the fair itself, about $13 today. And it was a long experience. It was about a 40 minute experience. But they noticed these guys would keep going on the Ferris wheel over and over again. And then they realized if you go to the university today, there's a building called Foster Hall, which is right there on the Plaisance. And that was one of the women's dormitories because the University of Chicago was founded as a co-educational. <laughs> they realized that these guys were looking into the women's rooms, bedrooms and things as they were going. So even in the 1890s, you know, you had some peeping tops. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Uh, yeah. Besides the amazing view in a time before air travel, right? Right. Where you'd get a great perspective up high of the city. Right. And into people's rooms. <laughs> yeah. You'd get a show all along the way up and down. Right. Well, that humanizes it yeah. because we look at these black and white photos and these people, sometimes we think they're like statues and it's sort of nice to realize that they were just horny teenagers. Oh, yeah. Everybody was. I mean, it was like a... a real event that was both awe-inspiring and amazing but then you know people were still eating and, and drinking and, and enjoying music and, and meeting up and sometimes having negative experiences so you know these very kind of human experiences that you don't get when you just look at the photographs that survived today many of which were kind of carefully staged or the lithographs and engravings that were produced which all are sort of stressing the monumentality of the different buildings and their beauty. It was still like actual living people that were moving through these spaces. And that's kind of evident in Chicago by day and night as well, because it's focusing on all things that people did when they weren't at the World's Fair in Chicago. So, I mean, in many ways, the 1893... World's Fair in Chicago was a response to a World's Fair that had happened in Paris in 1889, mm-hmm. where that style of architecture was certainly in, in vogue, where they had immense attractions like the, the Eiffel Tower. So part of the thinking behind moving forward with the Ferris wheel was to out Eiffel Eiffel, right. as, as someone said, <laughs> and produce this immense structure, this feat of engineering that had the added benefit that it moved. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I was just going to say, and this is also at a time when commercial steel is now becoming inexpensive enough that you can actually build large structures with it. Mm-hmm. So it would have been, you know, pretty amazing at that time to like, here's this new material and what can we do with it? Right. Which is once again, another kind of fascinating quirk of the world's fair in that it's both very forward looking, but then also backward looking as well. Right. So those big buildings that we were talking about that are in the court of honor you're right. They have the latest kind of building materials like that steel, but then their outsides are made to resemble these Greek and Roman temples. Yeah. So it's really interesting that it's very much kind of pointing towards the future, but then also kind of like gesturing back to the past. Well, and adding to your new and the old, there's like the canals that were designed as the waterways, which are ancient ideas, but then here's this electrification, right? And there's this battle between mm-hmm. AC and DC and what's going to be the predominant right. method of distributing electricity. Right. And so it was the first time that any major, I guess, series of buildings or area had been electrified, right? Which is why that whole white city was so dramatic of all of a sudden you could flip a switch right. and it's lit up and it stays lit through the night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was a true innovation and it really kind of helped to, um, you know, persuade the, the broader public uh, that AC was the direction to go, which was favored by Westinghouse, which won the bid to electrify the, the world's fair, as opposed to, you know, Edison's company, um, which was a proponent of a DC and, and, and direct current. Right. And you're right. So you had all the buildings electrified, but then you could escape to the center of one of the lagoons where there was the wooded isle, which is still there today. And that's where mm-hmm. Japan had their pavilion. And that was lit entirely with like paper lanterns, gesturing once again to a kind of past and a kind of romanticized past. And, and there were constantly those sorts of juxtapositions right. happening. Right. And the streetcars were mostly DC powered. And in fact, mm-hmm. when they electrified versus being cable cars or horse drawn, 
to cross the bridges, the city would require them to power the bridges. So the bridges today are still often, or a lot of them were run by DC power. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, was still not yet resolved as what's the major electrification infrastructure for, for the world or the United States even. And of course, Tesla was the genius behind AC. I believe you could send a pulse any distance, really. Whereas Edison's DC, like at Niagara Falls, they couldn't make it to Buffalo because it would like burn up after 20 miles. So we think of Edison as this genius, but when it came to this concept of the pulse, that was all Tesla. Mm -hmm. But then again, Edison had a lot of money and he had a lot of clout in the Chicago sense. So, I mean, Edison really was Goliath uh, versus mm -hmm. Tesla is David in the electric wars. Paul, I was one of the things I wanted to ask too was, mm -hmm. uh, can you kind of describe what life was like? I mean, I'm assuming that most people that are living with candle or kerosene lanterns, right? The work day, that kind of thing. What, what was your sense of that from going through all this? So, at the time of the World's Fair. You know, Chicago has recently overtaken Philadelphia as the, the second largest city in the country. And it's not that many years, you know, it's about 22 years removed from the Great Chicago Fire, right, which had kind of wiped out three quarters of the city, mm -hmm. but that had the benefit of allowing the city to rebuild in a very kind of modern way. That said, I mean, Chicago in 1893 is a city of immigrants by and large. In 1900, like one in five Chicagoans had been born in Germany or as the child of German-born parents. And they kind of made up the largest ethnic group at that time. Followed, I mean, followed by the Irish and then increasingly by Italians and, and Polish and Czechs and Slavs and so forth. You know, diverse population. You had a lot of manufacturing, had an immense transportation network. So Chicago was like this railroad hub of the country. There was something close to like 30 different railroad lines that ran through the city. So depending on like who you were and, and what your station was, I mean, you could be somebody who was working, mm -hmm. you know, anywhere from 14 to 16 hours a day, six days a week at the union stockyards, right? Making basically subsistent wages and, and living in a, a rented wooden tenement structure that's like shares a lot with another structure in Bridgeport, right? Or you could be somebody like a, a Potter Palmer, who had started out with just a, a general store, a dry goods store, and, and some real estate holdings, but, you know, used that to build, you know, one of the premier luxury hotels in Chicago, and now had a kind of medieval style mansion on Michigan Avenue, mm -hmm. north of the river. And there was kind of everything in between. You know, Chicago is the place where ambitious people from across the, the country came. A lot of the writers that we associate with Chicago, like a, a Theodore Dreiser, or a little bit later, like a, a Carl Sandburg. I mean, they were coming from other parts of the Midwest, often starting as journalists, which kind of gave them enough financial stability to, to become artists. So it really kind of depended what your background is, who you were in terms of the kind of lived experience. You could have something that was very, very modern if you were rather affluent or something that wasn't all that different from lived experience in the 1870s, depending on, on your station. And this is also the time, too, where you have real attempts to address problems of living in the city. I mean, one example would be George Pullman's Pullman town outside of where he built his palace railroad cars, which is now a neighborhood in Chicago called Pullman, where he tried to construct for the people working for his company a very contemporary community where you would have like electric lights and modern gas fixtures and running water. The company owned everything. And then contrast that with what was going on on the near west side of the city of Chicago, where in 1889, Jane Adams and Ellen Gates Starr started Hull House. That's another way of responding to the challenges of living mm -hmm. in a city, right? Where people come, they move into particular neighborhoods, and they work very closely with the communities there to like establish even very basic things like garbage removal was like one of the things Hull House did, even as it you know, was helping some of these in immigrant communities transition to, to being American citizens while also helping people learn about their culture. So it's a time in, in Chicago's history where like experiences were really varied and there was a real sort of sense of possibility and the city was still growing, right? It was still 
far from even reaching its peak in terms of population and wealth and level of production and, and all that. You talk about the people that built the fair. I believe one of those people was Eliza Disney, who mm-hmm. was a carpenter, and he used to tell his son, Walt, all about the fair and how great it was. And some historians have said that that planted the seed in Disney to build Disneyland. I could see that. Certainly when you look at images of the Court of Honor, it is very kind of reminiscent of what we would ultimately see in the Magic Kingdom, whether it's Disneyland or, or I think Disney World in some ways is actually more analogous to the World's Fair because yeah. it has the kind of the Epcot Center has the sort of global pavilion of things like the, the Main Street attraction in, in, in Disney World, the sort of themed buildings. And Paul, I think, didn't they invent the spray gun to actually apply the staff? Because these buildings built of these temporary materials, you know, just were made of this kind of plaster staff material, the exteriors. Yeah, so they had kind of like a prototype of a kind of like paint gun to like spray it all on and, and do it very efficiently. I think I remember reading that, yeah. It's not well remembered today, but there was a Princeton economist by the name of Walter Wyckoff who decided he wanted to like test out his theories in a practical way. So he traveled around the country incognito where he hid his identity, that he was this academic, and he would just take jobs like working in a lumber camp in Minnesota to see what it's like. And so he actually worked as a, a laborer at the World's Fair. So actually like building some of the roads and, and things like that and pass through the fair. But then he was caught in Chicago during that economic collapse. So he actually writes to about like, essentially being reduced to being like a camp or a hobo and living in some of these abandoned buildings. It's a really fascinating book that he... Oh, wow. Like the plot of the fugitive, because it'll always, there'll be some point where he'll have to reveal that he's this like, economist with a PhD. So he'll be working as like a hoarder at a hotel and the hotel's failing. And then he like opens up their books and he like counts it. Kind of like that reality show, Undercover Boss or something like that. I mean... It was kind of like that, yeah. <laughs> Very similar concept. What's his name again? Walter, Walter Wyckoff. Okay. That's definitely worth checking out. But it's, uh, it's fascinating because it's one of the few accounts you have of somebody who has actually wrote about his experiences actually like building the fair leading up to its opening in, in May of 1893. And then who kind of like stuck around Chicago through that period. That was an era too where people love to do that. Investigative journalism is sort of coming into being and you have all of these different figures that are tending to be other people mm-hmm. that kind of give you these sort of slice of life experiences. Fair was obviously a too good of an attraction to, to pass up. This is what's so cool about history is there's like, there's no original idea. <laughs> you just morph it right. over the time. Let me ask you, Paul, if you could go in a time machine and go to the World's Fair, where would you go first? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> that is really hard. I would um, I have to do the Ferris wheel, to be honest, because I just, I can't imagine still to this day what that would have looked like just being that high when you were at the very top of it and then one of those cars and then having that view. I guess today, I mean, we can go into things like the, you know, the Sears Tower or something and maybe get a similar experience, but like what that must have been like in 1893 to just be so high above the world. I, yeah, I would want to, I'd want to take in that view first. Patrick, what would you do? I tend to be a macro person. I, I like the big picture. So I would have to stroll around the whole thing very quickly or as quickly as I could and then figure out what I was going to go back to and spend more time on. I'd want to try to get as much as my arms around it as I could first. I'll tell you what I would do. I would probably not even go to the fair first. I'd go catch Wild Bill's Wild West show. <laughs> oh, which technically wasn't in the fair. I think it was outside of the grounds. I would see the reenactment of Custard's Last Stand. Boy, that would be unbelievable. With some of the Indians that were actually at Custard's Last Stand, uh, they were in Wild Bill's show. Yeah, that would be interesting. And then I'd sneak back and I'd want to see that great promenade, Court of Honor, at night, I think would be especially incredible. Oh, speaking of which, there's that statue that is oh, yeah. the center of the court, and it still sits in Jackson Park today, right right on Hayes Drive there. And I've driven by it many times this summer because I've been down there a few times. What? Tell a little bit about that, Paul, if you could. So that's a, a reproduction. And it's huge. It's a massive statue. 
Right. And what's interesting is that's about 25 feet tall. Okay. The original that stood in the lagoon was 64 feet tall. Wow. So that statue was erected to mark the 25th anniversary of the fair, 1918. And it doesn't stand where that statue originally stood. So it stands basically where the administration building was, which was kind of like the nerve center of the World's Fair, near where Grover Cleveland pushed the button that, you know, started everything up at the World's Fair. That statue's right by the golf course, the Jackson Park golf course, just to give people a sense. Right. Yeah. The sculptor was Daniel Chester French. So today, Daniel Chester French is best remembered for having done the Lincoln sculpture at the Lincoln Memorial. In Washington, D.C. Right. Yeah. Wow. Very cool. Paul, I was in uh, New England a while back, and I got a chance to tour Augusta St. Gaudens private studios. And of course, he was very influential with the statuary of the World's Fair. And uh, it was a real treat to see copies of some of the statues that were at the World's Fair. They're magnificent. Mm -hmm. He did a lot of work there. And then today, I mean, for Chicagoans, I mean, he's probably best known for the sculpture of Lincoln in, in Lincoln Park. Which supposedly people that knew Lincoln said is the most realistic Lincoln. And let's talk about the racism in the book and the fair. I was shocked when I read, again, uh, you know, 21st century sensibility. When I read about the Palmer House, basically the guidebook says, I'll just read it to you. The Palmer has a number of guests of Hebraic extraction at shelters. Mm -hmm. And in the footnotes, you say, well, this is a double message. This is, if you're Jewish, you can stay at the Palmer House. Or if you hate Jews, don't stay at the Palmer House. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I was just, to a modern sensibility, this is shocking. I mean, the racism, I mean, there was nothing subtler or disguised about it, either in, in the guidebooks of the period or in, in representations at the the World's Fair. So, you know, despite their many contributions to American culture and industry and the economy at this point in time, Black Americans didn't really have any role in the planning or design of the fair. And this was something that was called out by a journalist, Ida B. Wells, who actually moved to Chicago during the time of the fair and would stay here and spend the rest of her life here and, you know, become involved in, in a growing civil rights movement, become involved in women's suffrage, and, and highlight lynchings occurring across the southern states. But she was working very closely at the World's Fair with Frederick Douglass, who was there actually at the Haiti Pavilion and the Haiti Building, because he had been minister to Haiti during President Benjamin Harrison's administration. And that gives you a sense, at that point in time, Frederick Douglass was probably the prominent Black American, right? Mm-hmm. People knew who he was. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And yet he didn't have like an official role from his own country's government, right? It was actually another country that invited him to be a part of it. And so they drew attention to these inequities. So Ida B. Wells uh, and a couple of collaborators produced a pamphlet called The Reason Why the Colored American is Not at the World's Fair, calling out this kind of lack of representation uh, or the forms of representation that existed that were very demeaning. And it wasn't just, you know, Black Americans who were kind of calling the fair on its, you know, issues. On Chicago Day, which is the day, October 9th, 1893, that had the highest paid attendance, it was like 750,000 people paid to to go to the fair on Chicago Day. They invited a man by the name of Simon Pokagan. Hmm. And and Pokagan was a prominent member of the, the Potawatomi Nation, living in Southern Michigan at the time. He was invited because his father, Leopold Pokagan had played an active role in the, the treaty that eventually led to the United States acquiring the land on which Chicago was built in the 1830s. So they invite Simon Pokagan to come back, and he's there to like give a speech on Chicago Day, and also to basically be part of this floating tableau on one of the lagoons, right, in the World's Fair, where he's kind of reenacting the sort of like signing of the treaty, and he's playing his father, Carter Harrison, the mayor of Chicago at the time playing, you know, one of the people representing the United States government. 
they had to find a traditional costume for Simon Pokagan because he was just wearing modern 19th century dress because it's the 1890s. He was living in Southern Michigan. Right. He converted to Catholicism. But Pokagan comes to the fair with this document called the Red Man's Rebuke, which he later retitled the Red Man's Greeting. And it's printed on birch bark. And it's just this like short, like 16 page booklet printed on, on birch bark. And it basically tells the story from an indigenous perspective from Columbus's arrival back in 1492 up to the time of the fair, like, like how native people have experienced that history. And it continues to be sold at the fair and, and, and beyond the fair. A really interesting object, the Newberry has a version of it if you ever wanna see it. Because on the one hand, it's like this protest document. On the other hand, it's like a souvenir too that you can get from the fair, which is right. really strange. But you know, Ida B. Wells and, and, and O'Kagan are just two examples of people who tried to kind of complicate the story that the fair was telling, which was one of ceaseless progress, right? Always kind of moving towards a future and a kind of, a kind of uncomplicated future. I've been interested in this topic. Why do we worship Columbus in Chicago and the nation? We talked to Jeff Nichols about this. So Jeff, we talked to Paul Dorica, who edited the annotated book, Chicago by Day and Night, The Pleasure Seeker's Guide. With uh, Bill Savage, right? With Bill Savage, yeah. And we were talking to Paul about it. And in that guidebook, the racism against Italians is unbelievable, perhaps only bypassed by that of of African-Americans. And so let me ask you, why were they worshiping Columbus, who was an Italian, whereas the Italians of Chicago were reviled? You know, one thing about Columbus at the time, which other historians have noted, is that Columbus was a way for Americans who did not belong to, who were not old stock Americans, who were not, who did not have roots going back but hundreds of years. Americans who were not ennobled by, and I'm making air quotes, uh, by a frontier family heritage. It allowed them to claim a stake in the history of this country. So, you know, if you read so many of the narratives of different communities in the United States, Mm -hmm. including Chicago, you have these families who are rich and powerful because, you know, they were here first. Right. Like they the, the Kinseys. They were here first. And and so you get to hear about how they dealt with mosquitoes and they dealt with mud and they dealt with unhappy Native Americans. And that is why they are kind of a quasi-aristocracy in your town or in your city. And so Columbus was a way of celebrating non-Anglo-Saxon Protestant Mm -hmm. contributions to the building of this country. Of the New World. That's one source of tension. Why was it such a big deal to celebrate Columbus? I really do think that that's a like a huge aspect of why and of how he was remembered in the 1890s as a quote unquote civilizing force. Uh-huh in American history that was not old stock, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, you know, that didn't have roots going back before the Revolutionary War. Mm -hmm. So that was Jeff's take on 
the Columbian Exposition and why it's centered around Columbus. And now we'll get back to our discussion with Paul on the World's Fair. Again, talking about racism in the guidebook, I was shocked at the description of Italian Americans. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, at that point in time, Italian Americans, I, I talked earlier about how there were these kind of waves of immigrants coming to Chicago, starting in, in the mid 19th century, mm -hmm. early 1840s forward. So you had Irish, you had German, people coming from Southern Europe and Eastern Europe. In 1893, that still would have been fairly recent. And, and those kind of immigrant communities were still kind of moving over in, in large numbers. And they were viewed with some suspicion by longtime residents in, in the city. So different language, different culture, different part of Europe, a lot of the Italian Americans were Catholic, which was still a, a big issue. One's a religious affiliation. Mm -hmm. And at the time, Irish had already been well established, and there were even German Catholics who'd emigrated. Chicago was still a, a very kind of Protestant city. And so, yeah, so they're portrayed what today we would see as very racist terms, but would have been very commonplace. But that's why you have people like Jane Addams and Ellen Gates Starr at Hull House and others working very closely with these communities and working to kind of change perceptions of them too as they be folded into broader American culture. Well, each successive immigration wave, once they kind of assimilate and establish themselves as Americans, right. then shun the next wave that comes in or are suspicious of them because they take their jobs. Right. It continued to evolve that way. And it's a story that gets played out time and time again. Yeah. I mean, I think writers who do a really good job of, of documenting that are a little bit later on, but they're talking about the same part of Chicago, which is that sort of Hyde Park, Kenwood, Woodlawn area of Chicago on, on the South Side. And those would be figures like James T. Farrell and, and, and Richard Wright, right? Who very kind of actively talk about neighborhoods in transition and these different waves of people coming in. And so, yeah, if you've never read... Native Son or never read Studs Lonigan books, even though they're, they're very, very long. <laughs> you know, they're worth checking out to get a sense of kind of what the part of Chicago was like in, in the decades after the, the World's Fair. Those Studs books are so funny. I mean, the Lonigan books are hilarious. Yeah. Farrell writes almost kind of with like a reporter's eye. So there's a lot of attention to everyday detail. And I just kind of like some of the, the quirks. So Studs and his friends are getting older you know, like drink beer and, and they're kind of losing their, their looks a little bit. So they refer to their bellies as their aldermen. That was like swing after <laughs> like their beer bellies, <laughs> which I think is great because you know immediately what they're talking about. Right. But aldermen of the 19 teens. Hinky Dink, Kenna and all that. Yeah. I've been struggling to get through that book. It's thick. It's a couple of three inches. It requires the commitment. I mean, he's got a lot of good short stories as well. Yeah. Most of which are set in that Washington Park neighborhood that he grew up in, which, you know, is not that far from the fairgrounds. It's a little bit west right. of it. And he had connections to the University of Chicago as well. So you get a record of, of what that neighborhood was like in the decades after the fair. And the fair continued to have an impact on that area. So there was actually a, an amusement park called White City that was built on that kind of western end near Washington Park. In many ways, it would be very similar to like an amusement park that we would uh, attend today but kind of built on the fair's legacy. Sort of like the overview that was on the north side. But it wasn't built like right away after the fair. I want to say it's built in the early 1900s. So there's a little bit of a lag between the closing of the fair and the building of the White City Amusement Park. And I think it was gone before the end of the Great Depression from what memory serves me. Okay. I mean, it never did as well as Riverview. And, you know, Riverview, of course, has had a, a much longer life. Yeah. Paul, would you say that there's kind of like an elephant? One person experiences the trunk, one the tail. I mean, it's so big, it's almost hard to wrap your head around. I think that's a good comparison. Many, many different people write accounts of, of traveling to the fair. People from all different backgrounds and walks of life. Julian Hawthorne, Nathaniel Hawthorne's son, the novelist, wrote a whole series of essays about visiting the fair that he later kind of collected in a book to just give you one example. And each account that you read is wildly different. I mean, there were certain kind of key attractions that turn up time and again, 
but there's all of these different stories that you could tell about it and all these different things that you could experience. So, I mean, I was really fascinated with Pabst claim, Pabst Blue Ribbon claim to be selected as America's best beer in 1893. If you look into it a little bit, it's a much more complicated story and then not an actually accurate claim, but you could just like kind of follow that thread. Which we did a episode called The Brewing City. Mm-hmm. And we talked with Liz Garibay, right. looking at Chicago history through the lens of alcohol. And mm-hmm. she tells that story in that podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating story. Right? And that's just like one little thread. Or you could talk about, there's this guy named Steele McKay, who was kind of almost like the Orson Welles of the 1890s. He was a successful actor, playwright, and director. And he had this dream of building the world's largest theater, which is going to be called the Spectatorium. And it was going to be basically a little bit north of where the Museum of Science and Industry is today. It was in that kind of area, the fairgrounds. It was going to be 10,000 seats, and he was going to put on a play called The World Finder, or The Great Discovery, which was going to be about Columbus's arrival in the Americas. And he was obsessed with making it as accurate as possible. So there was going to be actual water. There were going to be ships that were three-quarter scale. He actually had plants from Cuba imported (laughs) to be part of the set. It was going to have a cast of thousands. And then there's that economic crisis that happens at the beginning of the summer of 1893. And all of his financial backers, including George Pullman, who's one of them, pull out. And the thing is only half-built, and it never opens. And because of the 19th century, of course, McKay but not long uh, after that, falls ill and then dies. Mm. But his story is fascinating. And it's fascinating too, is he's trying to figure out how to move theater forward, which is to make it almost indistinguishable from later life. Everything is some size and scale. But then at the World's Fairground, we also have Edward Moybridge, who is showing his early photographs around like animal motion, famous images of horses and things. Oh, right. So you almost have like the birth of film happening at the World's Fair too, yep. which is the direction that things actually go, right? If you want greater verisimilitude, it's not about building bigger sets and importing plants and having casts of thousands. It's instead developing, you know, what becomes motion pictures, right? And that is right. close to reality. So it's interesting that you could just focus on stories like that. I mean, there's endless paths to take. Frances Hudson Burnett, who wrote The Secret Garden, which is that children's book people love, she wrote a book about the World's Fair, which basically has the same plot as The Secret Garden. It just involves two kids who sneak into the fair and, and find like their own kind of like hidden place in it and have to like help out another kid who's like ill. And it's basically the same plot as The Secret Garden. Which did she write first? She wrote the World's Fair book first. It's called The Little Pilgrim's Progress. Yes, okay. And it's a fascinating and, and very strange book. And it's got the exact same plot, more or less, as her better known work. And she'd been to the fair and based it on her visit there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. I find it endlessly interesting. And each time I get asked to talk about it or, you know, something comes up where I want to like delve into it, there's a different path to take, which I imagine for visitors, it was the same way, right? You could spend one day just in the Court of Honor or another day just on the Midway Plaisance. That was Paul Dorica talking about another one of the fascinating aspects of the fair, the secret garden. Patrick, I did not know that story. No, that was completely new to me. And I, I don't know if I was read that book. It doesn't ring any bells, but I find it interesting as a writer how if you've got a good idea, just try it on something else. Right. Or, write once, publish twice. That's always a good trick in, <laughs> yeah. in publishing. Right. You can figure it out. This was a great conversation with Paul, and he had some snippets from Jeff Nichols. We're going to continue with episode three, talking to Paul, because there was just so much good stuff on the World's Fair. And go to the Newberry Library. It is open, even during the pandemic. You can go there. Paul has told us some of the ephemeral of the fair the Newberry is one of our favorite places. Same thing at Harold Washington Library. They have a great souvenir collection from the World's Fair. Chicago History Museum has great exhibits to the World's Fair. Next time, we'll finish our interview with Paul to learn his favorite story about the fair. We'll talk about what happens after the fair and its implications for Chicago and the world. And of course, we'll have a few 
uh, drop in comments from Jeff Nichols from our interview with him as well. I'm looking forward to the next episode, episode three of The Third Star. Thanks for listening. Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hogginson for the idea and branding assistance and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast.